Good morning. Well, this morning we come to the conclusion of our study through the book of Isaiah. And uh, we're going to study some verses in the very last chapter of Isaiah that I think are a fitting conclusion to our journey through the prophet. And uh, they give us an exhortation that I hope will leave Isaiah with ringing in our ears. Uh, Please turn in your Bible to Isaiah chapter 66, verse 1. Uh, We're going to end our journey through Isaiah by looking at what God says about where He dwells. In Isaiah 66, starting in verse 1, we read, Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where then is a house that you could build for me, and where is a place that I may rest? For my hand made all these things. Thus all these things came into being, declares the Lord. But to this one I will look, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. But he who kills an ox is like one who slays a man. He who sacrifices a lamb is like one who breaks a dog's neck. He who offers a grain offering is like one who offers swine's blood. He who burns incense is like one who blesses an idol, because they have chosen their own way, and their soul delights in their abominations. So I will choose their punishments, and I will bring on them what they dread, because I called and no one answered. I spoke, but they did not listen, and they did evil in my sight, and chose that in which I did not delight. In these verses, we're introduced to two kinds of people those who receive God's favor, those whom God wants to come home to, and those who are punished by Him. And it all begins with a a contrast in verses 1 and 2. Look again at verse 1. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where then is a house you could build for me and where is a place that I may rest? The Creator exists outside of His creation. He is dependent on nothing. He needs no one. He can make a new heaven, a new earth, anytime it suits Him. If the earth is like a footstool for Him, then what temple could you possibly build that it would uh, house Him? There isn't one. You, You couldn't build one. And so then that raises the question, well, if that's the case, what was the purpose of Yahweh in commanding Moses and the children of Israel to build him a tabernacle, and then later on allowing David's son to build him a temple? What was the point in all of that if you can't make a temple for him? And I believe we find an answer in Solomon's prayer at the dedication of the first temple. In 1 Kings chapter 8, Solomon gives a lengthy prayer, and this is part of his prayer when the temple was dedicated. King Solomon says, But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven heaven cannot contain you, how much less this house which I have built. Yet have regard for the prayer of your servant and to his supplication. O Lord my God, to listen to the cry and to the prayer of your servant, uh, which your servant prays before you today, that your eyes may be opened towards this house night and day, towards the place of which you have said, my name shall be there, to listen to the prayer which your servant prays towards this place. Listen to the supplication of your servant and to your people Israel when they pray towards this place, here in heaven your dwelling place, hear and forgive. So the purpose of the temple was not to give God a place to live as if He needed a roof over His head like we do. The purpose was for a holy God 
to provide a place where unholy people could approach Him in worship. The temple was a good thing, but uh, attending the temple, there were two dangers. And you see the prophets in the Old Testament have to address these over and over and over again. One of the dangers in having a temple was assuming that the Creator needed shelter from the elements. But God is spirit. He doesn't have a body. He lives outside of and is superior to His creation. He doesn't need food, clothing, and shelter like we do. The second danger in having a temple was assuming that by building it and maintaining it, the people who participated were somehow doing God a favor or in some way earning some favor with God. But by God sending His Shekinah glory to live in the temple, He didn't become beholden to the people who build it because He Himself is the one who gives uh, life and breath to all people. Uh, His sovereign freedom of action is not somehow limited because people built Him a temple and He chose to put His glory there. Indeed, God says, verse 2, for my hand made all these things, thus all these things came into being, declares the Lord. So, what you have in verses 1 and 2 is not that… it's not so much that God is repudiating the temple. Uh, he had… He commanded Moses to build it. He allowed uh, Solomon to build him… Uh, I'm sorry, He commanded Moses to build a tabernacle, he, and He gave Solomon permission to build him a temple. He's making a point that a temple is not the main thing He's after. So, if what He's after isn't a temple then what is he after? And he says in the middle of verse 2, in contrast to the temple, what he's after is, uh, but in contrast to a temple, to this one I will look on with favor, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. It was legitimate for Solomon to build a temple, particularly when God gave him permission. And great though he is, God condescended to have His glory dwell in the temple so that there could be a special place for His people to worship Him. But that's not the main thing God wants. God wants people who are humble and contrite and tremble at His word. The place God wants to live is the human heart. And unless He comes home to the human heart, all the temple building and cathedral uh, erecting efforts of mankind are futile. Uh, The very idea of this Hebrew word in verse 2 for look, it means to look on favorably. It doesn't just mean to, to see and notice. It means to look on favorably. It's not those who build God cathedrals that He looks on with favor. Instead, it's people who have these three qualities. First of all, they're humble. That is to say, they're willing to bow the knee to the lordship of their Creator, and their humility recognizes they can't do anything for God or to put God in their debt. He needs nothing. All of humanity could reject God in unison, and we could all collaborate together to ignore Him, and He's not going to curl up in some corner of the cosmos and suck His thumb. He doesn't need us relationally. He doesn't need us emotionally. He doesn't need us for His existence. Uh, In fact, as we learned last week in Isaiah 64, we don't even really serve Him. He's the one who serves us by giving us life and breath and all things, and then out of the way He's already served for and provided for us, then we give back some service to Him. Uh, And this is a very important point to make because one of the hallmarks of the false religions that the people of Israel and Judah were giving themselves to, one of the hallmarks of the religions of all the surrounding nations of Judah in Isaiah's day 
was this idea that you served the gods to curry favor with them. You, you gave devotion to the gods, yes, but it was for the purpose of earning their favor so that you could then try and use them and manipulate them uh, as an ally to help you with your goals and what you wanted to achieve. But humility before the true God includes turning from the foolishness of thinking we can manipulate Him, thinking that we can somehow turn Him and use Him in an ally in our own cause. That's not the way it works. And so, humility recognizes that. The second quality God is looking for is a contrite spirit. This same phrase is, uh, this same Hebrew phrase is translated in other parts of the Old Testament in the New American Standard as having a broken spirit or a crushed spirit. I think Jesus is referring to it in the Sermon on the Mount when He talks about those who are poor in spirit. The idea is that our sense of spiritual pride and moral goodness and self-virtue has been crushed. It's been broken. We declare moral and spiritual bankruptcy before God. We confess that He owes us nothing and that what we deserve is His judgment, and we throw ourselves on His mercy. That's the idea of having a contrite spirit. And then the third quality uh, of heart that God uh, looks on favorably is a heart that trembles at His Word. That is to say, the heart takes uh, the warnings of God seriously and is terrified by them. Uh, this heart agrees with God's law, desires to keep it, and grieves when it doesn't. It takes God's Word seriously. It doesn't ignore God's Word to do its own thing, and it doesn't treat God's Word like Plato to be manipulated by clever interpretations to try and make it mean whatever we desperately want to try and make it mean. Uh, the heart that trembles at God's Word reveres God's Word. It doesn't demote God's Word to the rank of being an authority in our lives. Uh, one authority among many other authorities, one authority that has to constantly argue with and negotiate with other authorities like personal experiences, fallible retellings of history, denominational leaderships and their pronouncements, or whatever the spirit of the age might be. No, it is the authority, the final authority, the authority which interprets all of our personal experiences, the authority that is more sure and more infallible than our histories, uh, the authority that confronts the idolatries that attend the spirit of every age. And this humble, contrite, trembling heart from verse 2, it actually answers the question God poses in verse 1. Uh, if you look at verse 1, uh, I think a mistake you can make is to think that God is just asking a rhetorical question. I mean, you look at it, and it sure seems like a rhetorical question, right? Where's a house you could build for me? Where's a place that I could come home to? Uh, and I do think it is a rhetorical question, but I think it's functioning both ways. I think, I think the Lord is using it with a double meaning. It's a rhetorical question when you read it, but then when you look at verse 2 to what God wants, it actually answers the question of verse 1. In contrast to the temple building that couldn't possibly house God, God is favorable to people who have this heart. Uh, maybe we could say it this way. God doesn't need a home, but if you really want to build a home for Him, the home He's looking for is a humble, contrite heart that trembles at His Word. God comes home to humble hearts. 
Uh, a number of years ago, there was uh, a band, a very eclectic band called Edward Sharp and the Magnetic Zeros, and he wrote a song called Home Is Wherever I'm With You. It was very romantic, right? He'd written it to a guy, writing it to a girl, Home Is Wherever I'm With You. Well, we have the same kind of dynamic going on. The home God is looking for are the hearts of people who are humble before Him, and they're the people who receive God's favor. But in these verses, there is a people who doesn't receive God's favor. They receive punishment, and you see that in verse 3. He says, but in contrast to this humble heart that trembles at God's Word, in contrast to that kind of person, verse 3, he who kills an ox is like one who slays a man. He who sacrifices a lamb is like one who breaks a dog's neck. He who offers a grain offering is like one who offers swine's blood. And he who burns incense is like one who blesses an idol. Now, this creates another problem, right? Because sacrificing a lamb and giving a grain offering is actually what God commanded in the law of Moses. They were supposed to do that in the temple. So, what is God so angry about? What's He up in arms about? Well, look at the middle of verse 3. Because they have chosen their own ways, and their souls delight in their abominations. So, I will choose their punishments, and I will bring on them what they dread. Because I called, but no one answered. I spoke, but they did not listen." And they did evil in my sight and chose that in which I did not delight. What's going on here is that the people of Judah in Isaiah's day were participating in a kind of hypocritical worship. Uh, They were participating in a kind of worship that would go to the temple and uh, offer sacrifices and, and a kind of worship, but then after leaving the temple wouldn't obey any of God's commands. Uh, This is a picture of people drawing near to God with their lips and with their words, drawing near to God with their sacrifices, but not uh, drawing near to Him with their hearts, having a heart that's far from Him and what He commands. That's the indictment. And so, maybe we could say it this way, setting these two groups of people in contrast. The opposite of a humble heart that bows the knee is a heart that chooses its own way. The opposite of a contrite spirit that's broken over its sin is a heart that delights in abominations. The opposite of a heart that trembles at God's Word is a heart that doesn't answer when God calls and doesn't listen when He speaks. And that kind of heart will be justly punished by God. The exhortation of the passage then is for us to humble ourselves in the presence of God own up to our sins and confess them for what they are, and to tremble at His Word by listening to what God says when He speaks. And with the time that remains, I want to ask, I want to pose a question and then answer it by way of application. Uh, If the heart that God looks upon with favor is the heart that trembles at His Word, what would it mean for us at Grace Fellowship Church uh, to tremble at God's Word with the teaching ministry of the church. Uh, So many of my sermon applications are personal in their focus, but Christianity is a team sport. And so, what would it mean for us as a church family to tremble at God's Word whenever we're opening it and teaching from it and listening to it taught? Well, I have a a number of practical applications, and uh, I'm going to divide the congregation into two groups. 
There are those of us who bear the burden of teaching, and we also listen to God's Word as well. It's not like I do all the teaching at church. I was just downstairs at Sunday school listening to Terry uh, teach through War of Words by Paul Tripp. Uh, but there are those of us who, in addition to listening, we bear the burden of teaching. And then there are others who only listen to God's Word. They're not interested or gifted in teaching, and I, and I want to divide the congregation into those two groups. And I have two applications for those who listen, two for those who teach, and then one to close with a reminder for all of us. Let's begin by talking about those who listen to God's Word taught, which is really all of us, because even those of us who teach there are times where we sit under the teaching of God's Word and listen to others. And so, this applies to all of us, really. Uh, number one, when you're listening to God's Word taught, listen humbly. Uh, when you listen to God's Word taught, the main reason you're there is to hear God speak through His Word. So, don't get too distracted uh, with this desire to listen to the most gifted entertaining speaker, right? During your Christian life, you're going to have a lot of different people try and teach you God's Word. Some of them are going to be one-talent teachers. Some of them are going to be two-talent teachers. Some of them are going to be five-talent teachers. If you wanted to be entertained, uh, the TV and the movie theater are probably much more efficient at that. You're there to hear God's Word taught. So, uh, don't turn a critical eye to how artfully the teacher gets it done, right? And think about it this way. You should be discerning. You should be a critical thinker about how the teacher is handling God's Word, yes, but don't turn that critical thinking uh, uh, to an evaluation of how artfully the teacher got it done, uh, because, listen, not every sermon's going to be a home run, and not every preacher's going to be Babe Ruth. So, you are going to have to settle for some subpar preaching, but to the extent that it accurately represents God's Word for you, uh, humble yourself under it. That's what you're there for. Don't be too critical uh, about the public speaking ability of those who teach. And then number two, listening humbly means listening primarily for yourself. Sometimes as listeners, we ruin really good sermons by thinking about other people who need to hear this sermon, right? Now, that can happen in an unhealthy way where what's, you know, the pastor's giving a challenge, he's confronting sin, and you're thinking about, and, and in some uh, blind, self-righteous way, you're thinking about someone else. We all understand that that's evil, but I mean this even in a, in a way that's well-intentioned. Those of us who do ministry to others and we counsel and we witness, we can be listening to a sermon that's full of hope and encouragement and thinking about our friend who's discouraged or depressed and how we can send them a link to this sermon. And the problem with that is that even when we do it with good intentions, the problem is that we begin to think of ourselves as conduits of ministry instead of spiritually sick people who need whatever medicine that passage is offering us. Uh, humbling yourself under God's Word means that when you listen, you're listening primarily for yourself. Um, that's what hu listening humbly means. Second, listen expectantly. Um, listen expectantly. Uh, at Grace Fellowship Church, we don't believe that the New Testament teaches an annual liturgical calendar 
like there was in the Old Testament, right? In the Old Testament, there was the Feast of Weeks and the Feast of Booths, there was Purim, there was Passover. They had an annual liturgical calendar. Some churches, uh, typically higher, more liturgical churches than us, they have an annual liturgical calendar complete with Lent and Advent, and, uh, you know, you calculate six months from when Jesus was born. We don't actually know when He was born, but you calculate six months, and then you have something for John the Baptist, right? Because it, and they have this whole annual liturgical calendar. Well, we don't believe the New Testament teaches an annual liturgical calendar that we should be uh, observing here at Grace Fellowship Church, but we do believe the Bible teaches a weekly liturgical calendar, and it only has one event on it. It's the Sunday worship service with God's people. Uh, Early on in in the early church, the Jewish Christians who lived in Jerusalem, the most natural thing for them to do when they got kicked out of the synagogues would have been to form assemblies where they would have met on Saturday morning when the rest of the Jews were meeting in the synagogue, and when all… It, it was just understood in society and culture, all the shops closed. If you were a shopkeeper, everybody was supposed to take the day off, right, and not work. That would have been the most natural time to meet. But they deliberately and inconveniently chose Sunday morning to worship on because that was the day that Jesus rose from the grave. And what that means for us is that we need to cultivate Uh, a rhythm to our lives where Sunday is the spiritual climax of the week. And that means preparing ourselves both physically and spiritually. Physically speaking, preparing yourself means understanding that Sunday morning starts Saturday night. Let me say that again for emphasis. Sunday morning starts Saturday night. You can't stay up late watching movies and binge-watching Amazon Prime shows and watching sporting events. Uh, You can't stay up late. You can't stay up till 2 a.m. and then roll out of bed with an awake body and alert mind to worship with God's people. It doesn't work that way. Uh, Do you want your pastor's sermons to get better? Like next week, for my sermons to improve, get a good night's sleep. Uh, with a good night's sleep, it's amazing how much more interesting sermons are, Uh, right? So, uh, in your calendar, make the sacrifice not to entertain yourself to death on Saturday night because you expect that there actually will be something good and important that happens on Sunday morning. And also, prepare yourself spiritually. Plow up the soil of your heart by praying for the seed of God's Word to bear more fruit in your life. Um, I'll give you an example here. It's funny. So, being a pastor, one thing they, they didn't like help me with in seminary, every now and then I receive compliments for my preaching. And I, I've, one thing that threw me for a loop early in pastoral ministry is um, sometimes I would bomb. I would just do a terrible job, just horrible, terrible outline, terrible delivery, no application, clinical explanation of the text. I would get done, and some godly saint would give me a compliment, and I would think, oh, they're just trying to encourage me. They're just trying to keep my spirits up, and, you know, thank you for the encouragement. 
Uh, but then I would ask them the question, oh, you know, what, what was helpful about the sermon? And then they would go into this, like, detailed backstory about what was going on in their lives and how what was in that passage was the exact thing they needed to hear that Sunday morning and how the Holy Spirit spoke to them, right? And I'm standing there and I'm like, I don't, e I don't even know if the Holy Spirit spoke to me, and, but it spoke to them. So, what's going on there? What's going on in that moment? What's going on in that moment is you have this godly saint who trembles at God's Word, talking with a pastor who's distracted about titles and outlines and illustrations. And what's going on is, I probably could have stood up that Sunday, just read the text out loud, given two or three minutes uh, of explanation just to make sure any phrases or words that are hard to understand were understood, no application, you know, five to seven minute message, sat down, which by the way is bad preaching. I could have done that, and they probably would have just been crushed by the exhortation of the passage. Why? Because they have humble hearts. That's why the sermon undid them, not because I'm eloquent. It undid them because they tremble at God's Word. Uh, so, whether it's a Bible study or Sunday school or the Sunday sermon, listen humbly. Pray ahead of time before you come to worship. Uh, Saturday evening, part of the thing I do, and it's not, it's not like this long thing. It's like two minutes, five minutes, is I'm praying for what's going to happen the next day at Grace Fellowship Church. I'm praying not just for my teaching, but everybody else who's teaching, and I'm praying that the Lord would speak to me through uh, Sunday school and uh, the other, through the worship music and the other things that I take in as a listener. So, uh, listen humbly, listen expectantly by preparing yourself both physically and spiritually. And then for those of us who teach, and I have in mind here anybody who teaches. You know, even if you are the substitute teacher for children's Sunday school and you only teach once, once a quarter, any of us who teach at all at Grace Fellowship Church, I have two applications. Um, first of all, number one, trust God's Word and prepare. Uh, if you're like me, and I'm going to confess a weakness here, if you're like me, sometimes you get assigned a text, and before you even study it, you're saying in your heart, well, yeah, I mean, it, it is part of God's Word to us, but will it be relevant? Will there be any good application? I got assigned a minor prophet. Is there going to be anything relevant for us in the church era in, in America in 2022? And what that is at its heart and soul is doubt that all of God's Word is profitable for reproof and teaching and correction and training in righteousness. Just trust the text. Pray for the Holy Spirit to show you what you need to see from that. Pray for the Holy Spirit to work in your heart in such a way that the implications of the passage will leap off the page at you. And then study. Uh, study, and what you'll find, Cam likes to refer to this on Thursday nights, you'll find nuggets that you didn't expect to find, nuggets that you didn't know were there until you sat down to really study it in its context, in its historical setting. Um, and so, trust the text and study it, and you'll be amazed what you'll find, even the genealogies. And I promise you, I will do my best to make sure you never get assigned a genealogy. But, but even the genealogies are there for a reason, and even if the purpose for them existed ceased to be relevant with the old covenant, because we're in the church age now, even in that case, the genealogies are still relevant, right? They teach us 
that God cares about families and communities. They teach us that God keeps His promises through the long ages of history. They teach us that God uh, recruits individuals and enlists them in His reconquest of a world gone bad. And those lists of names remind us that God writes down names in the Lamb's book of life. So, trust the text to be profitable for you and your hearers and study it. Uh, and, and do study it. Prepare. Preparation is the key to success. There are plenty of good resources out there to help you. There's commentaries. There's, Bible, uh, there's study Bibles with good study notes. Um, there's all kinds of things that you can find that'll help you with uh, historical backgrounds and original languages. You don't have to know Greek and Hebrew to do Greek and Hebrew word studies anymore because of the scholarly resources that have been produced. Trembling at God's Word means treating it like it's actually worthy of our study and preparation before we teach it. Better to go long and labor your hearers by uh, teaching for too long because you found all this stuff you were excited about and you still can't edit yourself, and so you tried to share all of it. Better Better that than going short and having nothing insightful to say, and we all get done and we're like, well, yeah, that's kind of what was in my English Bible. And we don't learn anything new because you didn't prepare. Make sure that you study the text, prepare, and ask for the Holy Spirit's help. Prepare and trust the text. And then uh, number two, and I, I confess, I struggle with this one, but we, we got to be aware of it, and we need to, we need to put in some effort uh, trying to do a good job here. Uh, teach the mood and the theology of the text. In other words, don't just teach the meaning of the text, teach its mood. Uh, Sometimes in our circles, there's a flattening of the biblical text because of our personalities and inclinations. Uh, Some of you are bent towards compassion and caring, and you want every passage to be the balm of Gilead right? But they're not all like that. There's a great white throne judgment in Revelation where uh, the dead are raised and judged according to their works and cast into the lake of fire. So, it can't all be the balm of Gilead. Others of you, you want thunder and lightning to, to rain down from heaven every sermon, and not all the passages are like that either. Uh, pay attention to the mood of the text. I've heard Kevin DeYoung, uh, Pastor Kevin DeYoung, illustrate it this way. Psalm 23 has a mood, right? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. And some of you, the way you want to preach it is, why don't you have Jesus for your shepherd? He, he, he leads you to green pastures, but you won't eat. He, he has still waters for you to drink from, but you won't drink. Now, see, the problem with that kind of preaching is that the content may be true, and that actually may be a challenge some people need to hear, right? But that's not the tone or the mood of Psalm 23, right? If, you, if your hearers needed that challenge, it would be better to preach a different passage that has that challenge, right? Uh, the, the, the mood of Psalm 23 is one of comfort because we have a good shepherd who loves us and guides us. Uh, And so, you need to pay attention to the mood of the text, but also make sure that you teach the theology of the text you're in. All of us come to the text with our own systematic theology, our own understanding of what the Bible teaches on various 
subjects. And if we're not careful, sometimes we can bulldoze the main emphasis of a paragraph with what, with what we believe the Bible as a whole teaches on a subject. Let me, uh, let me give a story of confession here on not teaching the theology of the text, and then one of justification after I've confessed. So, uh, early on in pastoral ministry, I had to preach the passage in Matthew 19 where Jesus answers the question from the Pharisees about divorce, and he, what He ends up doing is teaching on the purpose of marriage. Uh, he ends up teaching on marriage, divorce, and remarriage. And if you remember this text, when He gets done, the disciples come to Him and say, well, if the, if the way it is between a husband and wife is the way that you teach it, it would be better just not to get married. That's what they say to him. Now, I think as interpreters, we have a choice, right? As modern American evangelicals obsessed with marriage, uh, we can look at it and say, oh, those disciples, they're just afraid of commitment. And I don't think that's what's going on. I think a better way to interpret the text would be to look at the disciples and say they understood the full force and meaning of what Jesus taught on marriage, divorce, and remarriage. Well, so that's what Jesus taught, and I have to teach on the passage, right? And so somehow I managed to teach that passage, including God's good design for marriage, because that's a part of the logic you have to teach in the flow of thought. I, I included God's good design for marriage. I got done, and two students from Mary Washington came up to me after the sermon and asked me to pray for them that God would bring them godly wives. Now, just take a time out now and just stop and think about what that means. My Lord teaches on marriage, and when He gets done, no one wants to get married. I teach on marriage using some of my Lord's own words, and the romantical college students want to get married. That's a problem. That's a problem when my Lord teaches on it, and everybody's sobered, and I teach on it, and people are asking to get married. Like this, that's not okay. That's not the theology of Matthew 19. There are some passages that celebrate marriage and God's good design for marriage, and it's great in those passages. But in Matthew 19, we need to warn people about what marriage is and that it's intended to be a permanent relationship for life. I got the, I got the theology of the passage wrong because I wanted to preach a chipper, sunny theology of God's great design for marriage that was largely untouched in my exposition by the fall of mankind into sin. Make sure you preach the theology of the text. Uh, now that I've confessed, I do want to have just one illustration of self-justification. I can't help myself. Uh, later on in Matthew 19, there's the story of the rich young ruler, right? And uh, many of you remember the story of the rich young ruler. He comes to Jesus. He says, what must I do to obtain eternal life? Jesus gives him the law. And what's going on there is that Jesus wants this man to look at the law of Moses and see the fact that he hasn't kept it and that he needs a Savior, right? That's what Jesus wants. But if you remember the story, the rich young ruler, he doesn't just say, oh, I've kept all the commandments. He says, I've kept all of them from my youth. He thinks that he's kept all the commandments his entire life, and yet he still senses that he doesn't have eternal life. And so he says to Jesus, what, am I, what is it that I'm missing here? What am I still lacking? And Jesus tells him to sell his position, uh, possessions, uh, give the proceeds to the poor, and then come and follow me. And he, he meant 
like literally come follow me. This is in the middle of Jesus' earthly ministry, and he's asking the man to leave the prestigious life he's carved out for himself and follow Jesus as an itinerant preacher, and, and the man rejects the offer. He, he walks away. Um, well, I got done preaching that passage, and I'm a firm believer in the doctrines of grace. I believe in divine election. And at the time, we had a, a man at the church, who, he, he moved away a long time ago, but we had a man at the church who also believes in the doctrines of grace, um, but makes the rest of us who believe in it look bad. And um, he was unhappy with me. He wanted the punchline of my sermon to be, the rich young ruler walked away because he wasn't elect. That's what he wanted from me. But is, here's my question, is that the theology of that paragraph? Well, first of all, we don't even know if the rich young ruler was elect or not. Jesus' own brothers didn't believe in him until after the resurrection. Uh, the rich young ruler could have come to Christ later. We, we just don't know. But even if Scripture did tell us, even if later on in the book of Acts we had some indication, even if that was the case, the point of that text is that uh, salvation is offered for free to you by the grace of God. There's nothing you can do to achieve it or earn it. In His mercy, God has provided a way for you. But if you're not careful, your unwillingness to confess that you've ever sinned and your love of money and possessions and your unwillingness to follow Jesus when He calls you to follow Him, that can keep you from eternal life. That's the theology of that text. That's what I preached, by the way but this man was unsatisfied with that. And the problem was he wanted me to preach a theology that was not the main point of that particular paragraph. So, brothers and sisters who teach, make sure you attempt to teach the mood of the text as well as the theology of the text. And then finally, for all of us, uh, just a reminder, remember what the Bible is. The Bible that we hear read and taught is the self-revelation of the most important person you will ever meet. He's the one who created all things and sustains us. He has authority to give life and take life and then cast the soul into hell. He's the one in whom we live and move and have our being. Uh, he has not been silent but has spoken, and we dare not neglect His words. The entry of His word gives light and brings truth. It is a tutor that leads us to salvation, and then after leading us to salvation, it becomes a lamp to our feet and a light to our path on our heavenly journey. The Word of God is sufficient uh, to accomplish the work of God, and as a church family, we want to study it, tremble at it, and be doers of it. Let's pray.